Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. Today, I welcome Alex Sesto to the podcast. Alex is a London-based movement coach who draws upon a diverse and extensive background to help coach others through many different aspects of their human experience. During this podcast, we explore dealing with adversity, training, psychedelics, art medicine, being a parent, depression, and a lot more. So let's get into it. Alex, thank you for joining me today. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really looking forward to this. Cheers, buddy. It's um, keen to get into your journey up until this point because you've got a very interesting background. So would you like to start with well, you can go back as far as you want to, but what led you to doing what you're doing today? Uh, what inspired you and say the challenges that have come up in the past? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I'll go back to childhood, I guess, and always very physical growing up and got involved in football from quite an early age. It's, it's quite quick quite agile and just I remember a day specifically when the game of football kind of clicked for me and it was like I was playing one day and I just thought I I get this I get how to do this and um, yeah so it came pretty naturally in that in that respect and then ended up getting scouted for Arsenal at the age of 10 so joined joined their ranks um, and continued to train with them until the age of 16 so my world was really consumed with football really it was it was football all the time didn't no, no other sports, no other time for anything else. It was all football. Um, so went full-time at 16 um, with a YTS there. So had a couple of years doing that. And then things um, started to take a bit of a difficult turn where I got injured. It was, wasn't really an injury. It was um, my, my feet were spreading out quite a lot in my boots and I was, they were rubbing against the side of my boot. And so I was getting these sores on the outside of my foot. And then they recommended that I should have this operation called double bunionectomy. And at the time, I was pretty naive to, you know, what was going on, really, and just was happy to just go with what was suggested. I had this operation where they shaved part of the bone on the outside of my foot down on both feet. And the, the one on my right foot ended up getting infected. So I got an infection that lives on the skin that actually got, ended up going to the bone, um, which was horrific. It was super painful. And had a, another surgeon look at it who was actually of the opinion that he was going to have to completely re- remove my little toe which ended up not happening after getting a second opinion from another surgeon who just realized he could remove part of my little toe and would I be able to keep it and that would have meant the end of my football career completely then but the whole thing because of the the mix-up and the infection that went to the bone it ended up keeping me out for quite a long time and when I came back just wasn't really sharp enough I don't think um at that's at that level to to compete in the same way that had been before so after going through that ended up getting released from Arsenal um and then the same year having a a car crash um it was pretty pretty traumatic with one one person dying in the car crash passenger who um sorry not passenger a a bystander who was walking across the road somebody hit my car my car span round hit him he ended up um, passing away, hit another car, and there, uh, so all this chaos happened in one uh, one year. Um, then from there, went to a few different other clubs over here, and then ended up going out to the US on a scholarship. I think when I was going on trial, 
at other clubs at other first teams I think I wasn't really emotionally mature enough at that stage to deal with the pressures of it I just never really felt like I could fully express my ability in that trial period in this kind of like window of time when you have to show what you've got I feel like I uh, the nerves would often get the better of me and found it difficult to perform at my highest ability level and then so yeah didn't get signed and then ended up going to the US and got a scholarship out there and spent four years in the US at a university started off two years in Alabama and then two years in Florida and had an incredible time playing every day living in the sunshine and just um yes still being super active super physical then Fast forward to the end of that and then coming back from the States back over here to the UK to London. And I start, this is when I started to make decisions based around what I thought I should do rather than what I truly wanted to do or what was what I felt was my authentic expression of what I wanted to do. And um, I did a marketing degree. So I thought, all right, I should probably get a job in marketing, which I did. And this was the first time that I became sedentary. I didn't even really know what that concept of that was at the time, but I was sitting in an office and where I'd had sport as a part of my life, a structured part of my week, structured part of my day for almost my whole life. All of a sudden now I was in a time where I didn't have that at all. And I was just sitting down for many, many hours a day. And I, I hadn't really picked up a gym habit. It was just football that I did. I did a little bit of gym that was sort of supporting the football performance, but nothing sort of specifically around um I'm training myself in that respect. Um, so I hadn't really, didn't really see an avenue for myself in that, in that way. It was only after a few years of, of kind of living like this, where I wasn't being as active as I once was, that I've really started to feel and notice that depression was, was creeping in. It was, I think, being sedentary, being in a job that I didn't find very fulfilling um, was just really steering me down a pathway of, I've just been feeling depressed and I think it's because I wasn't connected to my own authenticity and this all came to a head where I ended up leaving my job went through a breakup with a girl and then just did some soul searching and thought you know what is it that I really want to do with my life you know I need to do something in this world that I enjoy that is true to who I am and it was a time of my life that felt quite out of control where you know I was, didn't didn't have a didn't have a job at the time because I left my last job and wasn't really sure of the career path that I was going to take, and so I started to train, started to do bodyweight training, just going down to local sort of calisthenics areas and, and starting to starting to do bodyweight training, you know push-ups, pull-ups, and started to look at uh, Christopher Sommer's work and some of the gymnastics gymnastic strength stuff. I found it really interesting, and it was and what I what I really found interesting was the, the mental side of it and just having this mental release so in a time where my life felt quite out of control I felt you know I was working to control my body and that felt really really powerful and I could really see how much it was doing for me and get, to give me that focus and then I started to think about all right well I better get a job I better get back into employment and looking at companies that were similar to what I was doing before went to a few interviews and I came out of them and just thought I can't I can't do this and I literally just walked past the gym one day and went, went in there and just asked if they had any jobs so I thought right right let me just get a job in a completely different line of work and I can start to see how trainers in there operate see see it from the inside see if it's an avenue that I want to go down with a view to for being you know working one individual with people and then it was around the same sort of time that I first saw Edo Portal and saw what he was doing and super interested in it. I was like, 
because I just thought this guy can move incredibly. And I think I'd never really seen myself as a as a, a trainer that was going to be somebody that would, you know, work to get massive, get on stage, put a pair of pants on and flex and that sort of thing. I, I just thought this is it's just not the direction for me. But then when I saw that and saw these, these other little different ways of training people emerging, I, I really resonated with them and thought, actually, that I feel like I could really enjoy learning this and, and sharing it as well. I found it really inspiring seeing what he was doing. At the time, I hadn't done any sort of work with him, no workshops or anything like that. And so I, 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 could, I saw it, but I didn't understand it. I thought, this is incredible. I, like, I love what he's doing, but I don't know, you know how you begin to go about learning anything, like in, in, anything in terms of how to move like that. Um, so then did my PT qualification, got qualified at the same time, just learning a lot from people like Christopher Summers and, and really going down the, the linear strength sort of gymnastics route and understanding that more and more using tools like parallettes and rings and handstand, all these things that I was finding fascinating. And then eventually got connected with um, a guy called Bo Wilson, who's the guy I organized my flow state collective classes with and other, other things that we do together. And we were both very much on the same path in terms of the training that we do and you know, how we view training the body, how we view teaching. So we started to bounce ideas off each other, started to go to workshops together and attend various workshops from different teachers like Edel Portal and Tom Wexler and, and the likes. And really started to just develop our own kind of way of delivering movement sessions and trying to take little bits from here, take little bits from there and just try to create little really interesting ways for people to approach how they can move their bodies. It's, uh, it's been a fascinating journey and one where I've really felt like ever since taking that step, I've really started to come into alignment with who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. And this, this idea that has really just been something that's been really evolving and growing and developing over time, but it's kind of at the forefront of everything I try to do now and the decisions I make about where I'm going. It's always about, you know, is it aligned to who I really am and what I really want to do? I think a big part of figuring out what I wanted to do was figuring out who I am. And, you know, these are probably deeper questions, but I think that, you know, they're super important to really find happiness and to find a way of existing in the world that where, you know, you've, you've got a sense of purpose and you've got things that you're working on that you, you find fulfilling because, you know, I've been on the other side of it when life wasn't like that. And, you know, it was, it was hard. It, I found it really difficult. And like I said, I sank into definitely what I would call depression which I think for me it was that that was something that I medicated by partying excessively um, and just being really social and kind of trying to avoid um, really looking at what my life was and just escaping from the, the misery of the uh, Monday to Friday grind and um, just trying to yeah party excessively and be really hedonistic um, which yeah at the time that was that was the medication that I needed to help me to get through life but then as you know, as I've got older and I felt like I've found a bit more purpose and a bit more uh, direction in terms of who I, who I am and who I want to be I've come into alignment a lot more with all the things that I'm doing and it feels uh, feels nice to be in this place now and that's a that's one hell of a journey um it really there's quite a few things in there actually I'd like to unpack I mean one of which being the routine you probably gained in your teenage years with Arsenal and playing football, it seems like when you lost your routine and then you found a routine through training, 
it seemed to sort of reignite whatever that was that you felt you'd lost in that gap in between. Would you agree with that? And, and in terms of quite interested as well to find out more about the training that was actually involved in the football training at, in your teenage years. Yeah, absolutely. I would 100% agree with that. You know, I, I think because it had been a part of my life from such a young age, I just, I hadn't really noticed the value of it. It was just, that was just how life was at the time was, and, you know, moving every day and being really physical. And then the contrast of, of having that for so many years. And then all of a sudden it's literally go from that to sitting at a desk for, you know, eight hours a day, sitting on a train. And then, and it was, um, it was huge. And I think it's easy to underestimate how much of an impact that that has. And, and but for me, it was only after reflecting and thinking back, Oh yeah, that's, you know, that's, that was, that's crazy to go from that way of living and that amount of movement output, you know, in, in a day, in a week to, to really reducing that is you know, there's going to be some issues there and it's not just going to be physical issues there's going to be mental issues that come out as well because ultimately it's, it's all connected so 100% would say that yeah the routine that I had growing up was this really you know physical routine that was lots involved and then to lose that was very damaging but then starting to like you say come back to it like a light bulb moment it's like oh wow okay physically moving has a huge impact on my mental state and it wasn't really it wasn't something I can I'd considered before um and it, but I got I got a real lesson from it in, in terms of uh you know how I was actually feeling in terms of the training that we would, we would do at Arsenal you know would, there'd be lots of lots of technical stuff lots of um specifics around team plays around shape that we would want to be creating as a, as a team um lots of small-sided games um in terms of the conditioning, it was, you know, lots of <laughs> crazy cardio, lots of running. We did a thing called 12 minute that was brutal and had uh, different coaches had different ways of uh, trying to make everybody throw up. <laughs> but um, yeah, just um, lots of, lots of small sided stuff. So you're getting lots of touches on the ball, specifically at Arsenal. They, they, they like to focus a lot on that, a lot on getting yourself lots of touches, getting really comfortable on the ball under pressure, being able to keep hold of the ball, keep possession. And uh, yeah, I, I loved it. The training, the training, I, I really enjoyed, and always felt like I could really thrive in the training environment and uh, express myself. And then I think for me, I don't know what it was. I think it might have been, like I say, my emotional maturity at that age. But in like game situations, I always felt a little bit tighter, a little bit more restricted. It was a little bit, you know, I didn't feel like I could always fully express myself. I did, I did you know, I did at times, but I don't think it, I was consistently able to tap into that flow state, you know, where you're just, you know, you're just ready and playing. I always felt like a little bit like, oh, you know, I need, I could feel the pressure of needing to do and wanting to do well. And I think it limited my ability to fully express and play at the, at the level I, I know I was capable of. Do you, think, do you think that was partly down to the fact you had to, one, you're adhering to a position on the pitch, to your adhering to a shape and tactics so you always feel that partial limitation so that flow state really occurs you see players that seem to have the run of the park it's almost like the team has been designed around the Messi of the team or the Ronaldo whereas sometimes when it's very much like right that's your place your zonal your zonal marking or your man marking and you've got to stay there you're gonna to have to stay on this player do you think that affects that flow state to some degree I think so I think yeah because you know you would do things and you know, specifically, particularly if it was around, 
you know, like keeping possession and keeping the ball, then you might be more inclined to play it safe and to just pass to somebody, you know, that you can definitely get the ball to as opposed to, oh, let me take a risk and let me see if I can get past this guy, you know, and that's and that sort of thing. And that's that was something that was part of my game was 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 you know attacking and taking people on. But obviously, you know, there's a, there's a risk for that because you, there's always a safer option, you know, if you can pass to somebody. Um, so I think yeah, I think certainly there's yeah having lots of different. Um, you know, downloads of, of things that you're supposed to be doing, that the coaches are trying to drill into you. Um, having that as a, as a layer that's going on inside there, is, it does definitely make it difficult to then think, well, let me, let me try something here. Let me try and express myself, take a risk. And, mm. and you know, it's the way, I mean, I think it's probably changed a lot now, but the way there was some coaches there, that you'd get a pretty uh, serious bollock in if, uh, you know, things didn't go the way you wanted to go. And that was, um, some people thrive on that, but, it, you know, I, I, I feel like I didn't ever want that. You know, I didn't want that to happen. So I, I think I've probably played it safe sometimes. And you see that with players like, um, I suppose Luke Shaw is a, an example of someone in modern times who sort of the last couple of years uh, that has been, was a bit more restricted with previous managers and then he was told to explore the pitch a bit more. And you've seen a player that was almost leaving the game come back to being one of the best in, in the country at some point. So it's really interesting how, some players seem to thrive under that, right, stay where you are, operate within these parameters. And other players, are when they actually get to express themselves, that's when the, the real person seems to come out. Totally. Yeah, and I think, you know, it also comes down to like people management on an individual level as well and understanding, you know, what makes this person psychologically tick and, you know, what, what I think there's, there's, I think now there's more work being done to try and understand that around, you know, how can we get the best out of this individual player? Like, what is it, you know, what makes them really tick as opposed to, um, you know, a bit more of an old school approach of like, if it's not working, you know, shouting really loud at everyone. And I think, um, I think things have moved on a little bit from there. Yeah, I think even in the military, uh, some of those that were sort of in with some of the older styles of training wouldn't like to to see it. But I think that's how things are changing slightly because, I mean, I'm sure you see it in coaching. There's no point in giving someone a generic plan every single time because everyone is going to respond differently. Someone is going to respond to a cue differently. Someone is going to interpret that information slightly different to someone else. Yeah, totally. Yeah, some people like really rigid structure and they want to know exactly how. And some people like things to be a bit more open so they can freely move. And it's, yeah. And, you know, if you try the wrong modality with the, the type of person, then you know, they might reject that and not feel like they can work to their fullest potential under those circumstances. I, th I think so many people within the movement culture or, or somewhere within this movement experience, those that have sort of dived off into different routes, many people have come through these linear strength training processes to begin with. It starts in very linear processes. And I know this is something Edo's talked about at length, like drawing, finding the straight lines, connecting the dots, you think of it as a bearing north east south west for example then that becomes a circle and obviously you can take these anywhere those circles are multi-dimensional in the end but it's very interesting how so many people that have got to the point where they start to explore themselves more in a movement capacity tend to start with a bench press or an overhead press or, or body weight equivalents of these skills yeah i'd agree i'd agree i think they're probably a little bit more accessible i guess um in terms of understanding than some of the more linear or the more complex movement approaches because i know for me the first time seeing some locomotion i just i thought it was incredible but i had no idea 
what was happening really i didn't i couldn't see when one movement stopped and another movement started but then as time goes on you can start to say okay that's that movement and then that flows into this one and then oh, okay, you, you can still see the patterns around it but i think yeah certainly you know i, I think the fundamentals are so important and so good for just teaching people to start to find that that connection even something as simple as you know scapular pushes and scapular pulls you know they're not sexy movements as such you know there's nothing crazy going on but I think one taking someone from who hasn't ever explored that to really tuning into the detailed sensations of that small movement is such a nice way to begin to get people to think about the details of, of how things are operating it's so interesting seeing people who've got such a disconnect to those those movements because they've never mm. never uh, uh, felt them and then you get you start to get into them and you know they start feeding back like, oh my god I can my shoulder feels so different I can really feel you know how, how to feel, really feel into that retraction and all those different patterns throughout the shoulder so I think those really small details I think they're so so valuable to give people at the start and they, well they're, they're fundamentals they're called that for a reason it's building up people from that baseline and I think yeah that that tuning into those details is, is crucial and I, I find it really beneficial to sort of start people there you know those simple simple yeah, effective things yeah getting them to explore each joint seeing how something moves and if they can connect to it or not because i think awareness is huge if you haven't got the awareness of that process how can you expect to to master it in a couple of sessions it's just never going to happen is it yeah I, I fully agree and i think that there's a deeper philosophical layer to that where you know awareness is the start of everything any change you want to make you know whether it's a physical change or any change in your life like the first step is is aware of it for me to kind of moving from where I was at with my, you know, life in this place where I was sedentary, I was in a job I didn't like, and you know, just living for the weekend. The first step to starting to change was just becoming an aware of, you know, well, what is it that actually will make me happy, and and from that point of awareness, then you can start making changes. And I think yeah, that 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 concept feeds into so much in life, you know, trying to be aware of, of things of how of how you feel of, of where you're at and because change can, can grow from there. Of course. On, on that note, what made you stop at that gym? Reflecting back on it now, were you at quite a low point where you thought, I can't do this anymore? Was it almost at the point where you think, where you thought I needed to change and that's what got you to step into the gym? So so from the, from the corporate jobs? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, I think, so there was one, it was one summer and I knew, I knew I'd started to, I'd started to become aware that I'm just not happy in what I'm doing, but I, I really wasn't sure of what I wanted to do. And I think when I reflect on who I was then, quite reckless, quite, um, like if I think of a decision, I, I do it. So I was like, right, I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm going to take some time off and take some time to figure out what I wanted to do. So I quit my job. And this, this was the first summer that I experienced uh, plant medicine called DMT which is a psychedelic um, component that is actually found in the human body, at least from the pineal gland. And I had an experience with this that really shook up my view of what the world is and what reality is and what we are as humans. And it prompted me to start to go down the process of understanding myself and, and knowing myself more. And the first, the first thing that I had to do, I, I, I just realized it, 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 and it's interesting the way these things come to you. It's almost like 
there's a language without words at times where you just kind of get this download and you think, oh, this is what I have to do. And I'd never met my biological dad and I, I knew of him my whole life, but I'd never met him. And it just came to me, right, you need to, you need to know, start to know yourself. And so you have to go and you have to meet your biological dad. So, so that same summer, I, that was the first time I ever met him. And it was a really powerful meeting because, you know, it was a, you know, first, I think I was 28, maybe 28 years old, first time meeting him. And I think, yeah, as a, as a man to sort of understand who, who I am, it was a really important meeting, important chat. And so that was the first layer. And then it was really trying to think, well, what do you, who are you and what do you want to do in the world? And this was doing this, this was part of doing the work of soul searching and understanding, right, you've been so physical for all these years and that's gone. You, you need to do something where you can express yourself physically. And I really wanted to do something that was connected with people. And I felt like I was a little bit disconnected from people. It was more, you know, around making big businesses, more money, so, so to speak. And so I wanted to be really directly connected to people. And yeah, it, it just became apparent to me that I wanted to work with people and, and, and learn myself. And it just, it, all of a sudden these things came together. I thought, right, I could have a career where I'm learning to better myself physically and, and mentally and, and health in a health capacity. And then you can share that with other people. And it was like, this, that seems like such a beautiful way to, a beautiful path to go down, or at least the ladder that I really would like to climb, you know, rather than being, you know, halfway up one that I really don't. So going back to the DMT, it, it, we're talking about awareness. You literally went from like literally no awareness to full on DMT experience. Did that, did you feel like it almost dropped you in at the deep end? Did you feel like you almost catapulted through a few steps? Because you also mentioned that you want to become more connected to people as a whole. And you obviously realized during that time that the industry you're in was a very disconnected industry where it was all about money and beating the next guy or getting ahead in, in terms of targets. Is, is that something the DMT you think helped with? Is it something you think mentally it really sort of helped you tap into that connection aspect as well? Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, where I was at, because it's, it put me onto a spiritual path, you know, and I'd never really considered myself a spiritual person before that. I, was, I grew up and I went to Catholic primary school, but then, you know, we, we didn't you know, really pay any attention to the details of actually being a part of that religion it was just a, a school to go to and then when I, when I first went out to the US in Alabama I was at a Christian school there and I'd known some people that had gone to Christian schools over here and they were pretty much the same as any other school really it wasn't so much different but this was a Christian school in Alabama so it was intensely religious um, very like it was the most religious people I've ever met over there and so I would get into lots of debates with people who would say that I'm going to hell because I've had sex before marriage and you know these kind of things and so I would take this polar opposite view and, and kind of you know I was very much of the science you know you're born you die and that's it kind of thing that's that's and then I hadn't really considered those deep philosophical questions after leaving university very much then I had my first DMT experience and it was like showing me that there is so much more going on that you know you, 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 there's, you've got a lot to learn and I had these real cliche kind of teachings really or downloads where it was showing me that everything's connected we're all connected to each other and we're all connected to the planet 
and this was something that was just infused into my brain and then after that I'd never thought of that before and after it, I was like okay well I get that we're all connected to each other we're all connected to the planet it makes sense to me and it just set me off on trying on, on learning more around the sort of spiritual nature of, of what we are and deepening my knowledge of, of self as well and coming to understand myself more Make sure to check out our sponsor, Ape Nutrition. To find out all about their products, their ethos, how they support the environment, and a lot more, check out episode 7. And to save 10% on all orders, head to apenutrition.co.uk using the code HUMAN, that is H-U-M-A-N, at the checkout to save. Back to the podcast. How would you define spiritual? I know this is this has got to be a hard question, but um, yeah, how how would you personally define it, especially in terms of connection? For me, it's um, it's it's around what I said there, really, under the knowing that we are all connected to each other deeply, and we're all connected to the planet in a really deep way, and in a way that I hadn't um, seen before. You know, we, we we literally come from the earth, and we're so connected to the earth, we're so much a part of nature as much a part of nature as every tree every animal everything else here but i think we've come to a point i think society and our culture has, has railroaded us to a point where we feel like really disconnected from that you know we're disconnected from the human that we, we are the human animal you know the human body that is you know this organic thing that's come from the earth we feel very disconnected and i think a lot of that there's, there's all these mirrors, you know, there's this, this the disconnection to my authentic self. Is this, this is that disconnection to the truth of, of what I am, this human being that's, you know, literally an animal as part of nature and then living in a way that is not connected to that and then being very disconnected in, in many other ways as well. So just kind of t- choosing all these decisions that are not right for, you know, the, the pers- this person here, Alex. So, you know, mm-hmm. they're not, they're, those decisions weren't right for me. And I think that disconnect all led to, a cascade of decision making that was just veering away from my authentic self. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> it does. I think the whole term spiritual has been, uh, how do you say, glamorized through certain parts of the industry that really want to try and sell something or they're trying to sell. Um, and I'm not saying these things don't work because everyone, everyone to their own, but trying to sell crystals for 150 pound a piece, for example. And it, my interpretation of it based on what I've learned over the years has been a spiritual approach is connecting with things that necessarily can't be measured yet because at one time in space or one time in our history we couldn't send large amounts of data to a mobile phone we couldn't have this conversation right now where I can see you we can record this we can put this online that didn't mean that a hundred years ago that this is woo-woo or anything. It's just part of technology. We couldn't measure these things at that time with the apparatus we had. And it's just like as we learn more about space, we can't measure X percentage. The majority of the percentage of space is unmeasurable. So my perception of spirituality was it's an understanding that there is something that we don't know about, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist yet. So being able to tap into it, why not? Why not be open to it? Yeah, it's sort of accepting that there is a mystical side to reality and nature and that science hasn't got everything figured out yet. You know, it's, we, we, we're getting there, we're getting there. But like you say, there are things that can't be measured yet that, that, that certainly exist. You know, it's, there's a, I think it's the mantis shrimp that's got 16 color receptors in its eyes. So, you know, it's, it can see colors that we don't even know exist. Just, you know, we've only got three color receptors. So there's, there's, there are so many layers 
of reality and we only experience reality through these five senses and you know lots of different animals experience the reality in a very different way to us you know if you think of things like dolphins that echolocate and you can literally transport holographic images into each other's minds because you know they can see sound it's it's bizarre and yeah we, we think of reality being everything that we you know have come to know through these senses but there's there's definitely deeper layers going on and i think that when you do something like dmt you tap into these layers of reality that are there and like you're saying but these are things that can't be measured yet and you know i think we're slowly starting to walk the path of coming to research these things on deeper levels but to some extent i think they'll always remain somewhat mystical and, and very personal because it's, it's something that you know it's a a process and an experience that you have that is super mm-hmm. personal to you and anyone that has experienced it will, will testify that it's you know it's pretty pretty mind-blowing and it doesn't doesn't make sense in terms of the reality that we've come to know through you know the usual five senses but it definitely prompts you starting to ask some questions okay well what what is this thing and then what, what what's really going on here it's always interesting isn't it when you when you analyze where you are right now thinking about trying to talk to people about this when you're a teenager, when you're in the football team. Can you imagine the conversations? I used to think of this, talking to lads in the military. It never would have happened. Maybe maybe a couple of lads were more open to it, but maybe they are now. That, that's the difference. Maybe most people have gone through that stage. And it's, it's interesting as well how in sort of yoga teachings, obviously spending quite a few years studying different teachings, the actual form of yoga as a philosophy almost, as a life um branch of uh, a way to live your life as opposed to just the asana that everyone sees it was very much about learning i'm not saying i'm there to disconnect the senses in order to achieve these higher states and i always find it interesting when i talk to people about uh, psychedelics and plant medicine how it nearly always includes the removal of senses and understanding that most of these things are contained within us right now so we tend to think The world we live in is about adding things to our life, buying more stuff. In reality, if we all experience something like this, could we be far happier because we'd be more content knowing that we are already fulfilled? It's already in there already. We already have these things available to us. Mm. Yeah, certainly. I've certainly had some experiences where, you know, this this reality melts away and you're immersed in this this other reality and there's this real sense that, everything's just perfect everything is perfect you don't need it there's nothing that you need there's nothing that you need you've got you've got everything that you need inside you and it's it's beautiful to glimpse those states and i think a lot of the times with psychedelics they can be amazing tools for allowing you to glimpse certain states of being that you can then work to build a practice around navigating towards outside of that experience because you know you, you can't you can come to really rely on them to to feel that divine beauty but then if you if you do get to that stage then you, you kind of miss the trick because i feel like if you if you have those glimpses and you see this this beauty for a, a second then there's, there's probably a lesson there in that you can you can start to build practices into your life to to start to try and work towards getting to that outside of that experience so how how would you describe plant medicine being different to recreational drugs? Because I think a lot of people perceive sometimes when they hear plant medicine, they go, oh yeah, it's just another form of drug. It's just people getting high. Um, from what I've heard, and I can't speak from experience, although it is something that's on my list for sure. 
um, it seems to be far more therapeutic than recreational drugs. Recreational drugs seem to be an escapism almost, and it seems like plant medicine is more about the opposite, about going in. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, it, it depends on, on which psychedelic drug, because there are some, you know, if you think of things like ayahuasca or, um, and ibogaine, that, um, you know, they're as far from recreational as you can imagine in terms of, you know, they're, they're difficult experiences. But then there's, there's others, you know, things like psilocybin, that, that, that people have and do take recreationally and have, um, you know, really good time on and just have, and have fun on them, I think, you know, at lighter doses. Um, for me, that wasn't ever, well, I mean, it has been something I have explored, but it's, it wasn't the avenue that I first got introduced to them in, and it was more in a ceremonial sort of setting. And I think, you know, our relationship as a culture with drugs is quite interesting. You know, we, we take a lot of drugs as a culture. We're, you know, we're drinking coffee, sugar, and all these things that people don't really perceive as drugs that have really filtered their way into our culture and into our, into our lives. Obviously, alcohol and cigarettes, these, are, these things are all accepted, but then it's actually with, with the, the illegal drugs that I've taken, things like MDMA, and it, it's, it's a beautiful sense of love that you feel for all, the people around you, you know, your friends, and, and it's, it's amazing. And this is, this is what we're starting to see now with the research that's coming out, how they're incredibly useful in therapy. Like, for instance, MDMA is used um, with... If you've got a couple and one, one of them's terminally ill, it can be quite challenging for you know that dynamic and that relationship, difficult to have conversations, but with MDMA therapy, they're able to really open up and express love and come to a point of really communicating and accepting where they're at and what they're facing as a couple. And it's and having experienced that before, I can totally see how that drug in it would, would work really well for that. Um so you know, with, with things like psychedelics, I think it's important to distinguish what you'd like to get from the experience. Yeah, as, as with anything, you know, you, it's kind of thinking, well, what, what, what do I really want to be doing this for? And if there is, you know, some deeper um, meaning or some deeper soul searching that you're trying to do with them, then it's, it's good to do it in a ceremonial setting, which is where you're really bringing ritual into it, having a guide and, and setting a pretty deep intention as to what you want to get from it and, and sitting with it in that sense I think um you know recreationally like I say they, they they can be fun like people have had fun on them on, on lighter doses but you're you're missing some of the magic if, if that's the only way that they get explored um it's definitely there's a, there's a way to engage with them I think has been a little bit lost especially in the western culture you know a lot of the cultures of you know, south america and other parts of the world have you know quite strong shamanic traditions where they would engage with these plants and these these things and they've been a part of the human story for thousands of years you know almost every indigenous culture on the planet has got some sort of visionary plant that they would use um, as part of their culture as part of their rituals so i think the resurgence that we're seeing now in terms of the research that's going on and um, a lot of people talking about them on podcasts is this almost reclaiming of these things as as tools and, and starting to try and understand how we can use them in a modern context and use them in a way that really benefits people. So I think we're going to start to see people viewing them as recreational things a lot less and less as this research keeps coming to the forefront more and more as, pe as more and more people have these profound experiences they're going to see them oh, actually oh, this is this is a tool this is something that can really help me mm -hmm. it's, it's it. they're proving time and time again that that's what they are 
when you when you have a natural product of any sort that can't be monetized, it tends to be vilified within our cultures. Whereas you can have um, an opiate-based drug and you can end up being completely off your head on back meds because you've been given, uh, I don't know, Oromorph and Gabapantin and all these other type of things that are used for lo- lower back pain or like a slip disc. And yet, because that has a prescription involved, it, it's, it's deemed as okay. Yet when we start to talk, talk about these other things, because they haven't got that certification or that recommendation from uh, someone in authority, it then becomes this thing that's like, oh yeah, they're just on drugs, those guys. But in reality, like you said, it could be a form of soul searching. And I think that ceremonial process is really important. It's something I experienced in sort of being handed down those lineage, that lineage or that uh, ceremonial aspect through, uh, through, again, through yoga and mantra. It was something that there was always a ceremony involved somewhere. It was a sign of respect and it was a sign that it was like you weren't rushing you weren't rushing to do it because it was just as important as the actual process itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think ceremony and intent are super powerful things, especially intention. Intention is something that I've sort of mulled over and meditated on quite a lot, the, the power of it and, and what it really means, because I think it's so much more than just a throwaway word. I think it's literally an, an energy that becomes this tangible force that, that goes into creating things. Um I remember the, there's a ceremony room that I had was, was part of a ceremony and then the guy that had built the ceremony room was, was present on the retreat. And he said that he, when he built the ceremony room, he built it with love. And it's crazy, but when you're in that state, you can literally feel that this place has like each, each like piece of wood that he's put into position, you know, you can feel the intent and, and the love there. And um, I think, you know, like anything, when you really set a strong intention, that then feeds through and it becomes this this guide for how you behave and pulls you through towards a specific goal, a specific target. And there was something else actually that came to me then as well that you were when you're talking about um, you know, why these things are illegal. And guy uh, Terence McKenna, he's quite a famous uh, psychonaut, who says that psychedelics are illegal not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third story window. They're illegal because they dissolve opinion structures, culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. So it's, it's you know, there's, there's that layer as well that they definitely start to make you look at the world differently and maybe start to see that the way things are set up are not so great and maybe there's a better way of, of doing things there's certainly a better way that i can exist in the world that's not feeding into the, the narrative of just get a job get your nine to five go home watch some shit on tv eat this shit you know i think it, it definitely can pull you out and, and, and see that you know this is this is no way to live is there anything that actually just taking a step back thinking about it just to explain because I think some people can relate to this and say, oh, okay, how, how would you honestly gauge whether a building was made with love or not? Equally, I'd like to pose the opposite question. If you walked into a pub or a house, you know when you, you're going to move house and you go and you go, this isn't right. This doesn't feel good in this room. I think that's, I think a lot of people can relate to that process where you walk in somewhere and go, do you know, I shouldn't be here. This isn't my house or this isn't where I want to live. Yet when we start to think of the opposing thing, it's like, well, how can you find love in somewhere? But I think, again, maybe people have experienced that where they've found their home that they want to live in because it just feels right. And whether that's down to a pre-existing um, 
idea of a house that they thought they'd like at some point in their life or whether it is just genuinely because the intention and the love within that home did exist prior to them coming there who knows um again keeping an open mind i suppose is a good thing yeah totally you know i think like you like we were saying i think there are things that 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 are out there that we just can't measure yet and you know we've all had that experience as well of you know, the gut feeling and or being around or, or, you know, someone and you need to get this gut feeling that something's not quite right you know and for a long long time we didn't have language you know as humans we were fully evolved humans but without language and so communication was this this other thing that involved a lot more sensing and kind of involved smells and body language and all of these different things so there's there's so many layers to communication that are way more than just the words that are coming out of our mouth and i think that you can certainly pick up on energy and, and these kind of things that you know if you if you walk down a road and you meet there's a crowd there and you know you you know if, if there are a crowd that their intent is out there to rob somebody or rob you you know you, a lot of times you're going to walk down that street you're going to see them you're going to feel something so it's it and it's it's this you know it's this unseen layer that you're, you're picking up on at the same time like you're saying as well you you know, I think you can you can walk into rooms and, you know, you, you might not be able to put your finger on exactly what it is, but some rooms, the energy just, you know, it's you just feeling quite buoyant and quite light in there. And then other times, you know, you might feel it's a bit, a bit frosty. You know? And I think uh, these are all interesting little layers. I think we, we overlook a lot, but I think they're always going on there in the background. I remember watching this program years ago and they were trying to, it was about the sixth sense. It was basically trying to see if, as human beings, we could pick up on these subtle things. So they had people positioned behind a like a one-way glass in an airport, and they'd have people walk past. So in one of the tests, they no one was sat behind the glass, and they were basically using the cameras to monitor people's body language. Body language was very different, far more comfortable. As soon as they put, say, 10 people behind the glass, all staring at particular people, people started to rub the back of their neck, they started to fidget, they started to look uncomfortable. And it was obvious, and they repeated the experiment three or four times, it showed exactly the same thing every single time. So it's like we know. We know intrinsically whether we're being watched or whether we're uncomfortable. Body language teaches us a lot. And we see that with movement practice, don't we? Like being in the room with someone when you're actually interacting with them is a very different experience to a Zoom meeting or doing something online. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, very, very, very different. I think they say that, you know, the, the brain can pick up on the electromagnetic field of the heart of, of people from, you know, pretty, a, a decent distance away. They've actually measured brain activity picking up on that. So, yeah, there's there's certainly lots of layers and pheromones is another interesting one as well. You know, as you know, we can, they've done tests where if you, you're smelling the pheromones of a, the opposite gender and, the, the, the smell that you like the most is often like more more times than not the the same genetic profile is very compatible that would mean that you would produce you know the best chance of producing really healthy children so there's this you know there's all these layers of you know finding a mate and that sort of things that's super interesting how how many layers of communication and and reality that there are that that kind of get swept swept or glossed over you know and we but they're always going on in the background it's funny that, isn't it? I've never really thought of that. In the animal kingdom, that's a huge thing, isn't it? When when animals are in season, that is something that they're very receptive to with each other. But we cover with spraying stuff on us constantly. We're putting aftershaves on and perfumes, and there's all these synthetic smells in our environment. So we'd never be able to actually. Well, it might be far harder to pick up on these things. It must be a lot harder. Yeah, yeah I remember that. reading. Um, 
was it Sapiens, and he was talking a lot about that. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari's book. He was talking about how our sense of smell now that is is, is becoming diminished, which is we're just not relying on it so much. It used to be something that was so much more prevalent in terms of how we would interact with people. You know, if we were looking for food and losing that sense of smell would have been so much more powerful. And uh, yeah, it's just like you say, we're masking it. We're, we're wearing deodorants, so we're not using it. We're getting exposed to all of these foreign smells, and it's uh, it's not not working in the same way. But then you have a child, and then your smell does wake up. <laughs> you get hit with every smell, uh, every smell going. It's funny actually, with thinking about babies, you were saying you were saying about these things that we lose because language seems to get in the way, and all these other things. We're very reliant on that. Don't you find being a parent, you end up picking up on these subtle things from your little one? And obviously, uh, congratulations on uh, the second one on its way. So nice one, thank you. You're welcome. It's um, I personally found that I started to pick up on these little cues from the little one with zero. I mean, we still got zero words. We've just got noises right now and pointing, and that's it. But yeah, it's actually made me more receptive to what other humans are saying and actually what they're really saying not what they're vocally saying but what their body's telling me yeah that's fascinating yeah I, it's it's really interesting seeing all those things come online for a child and in terms of how they communicate and like you say the the intent that there that might not be the vocabulary correct vocabulary but the intent behind what they what they want or what, you know what they need is, is coming through and picking up on that is, is fascinating yeah i think i mean all in all just seeing a little human develop is, is, has been one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen. You know, I'm three years in now, it's like, like, a bit like yourself, and it's been incredible from, from a movement perspective, from a, a cognitive perspective. It's just been unbelievable to see that process because it's a process that we've all been through, but seeing it from this lens now, from the parent side, is, is fascinating. And it's, uh, it's been really good to yeah, see her develop, especially from a movement perspective as well. Been, she's been through some challenges my little one she she actually had an operation um obviously she was just just almost two and she had she was born with something called hip dysplasia which is where the, the head of the femur doesn't sit into the socket so and it's not really really a socket when they're you know that age it's mm. it's kind of there but the way that develops the socket is that it's always constantly moving around in there and as the bone grows it grows nicely and smoothly but hers was, was dislocated so, so it was never in, in the right position it's just a it's a genetic bone deformity and so surgery is required and I remember at the time I was looking around there must be a way to fix this without surgery you know it must be but there wasn't so she had to have a pelvic osteotomy where they break the pelvis set the femur into position and then reset it and then she had to wear a cast from her chest all the way down oh, to her ankles man. and so and she was she just started walking and she was just starting to enjoy climbing up on the sofa and all these things and then and obviously from my perspective to, to take away someone's movement completely you know to, she didn't understand what's going on you know going to surgery and then wake up and she's literally paralyzed from the chest down in this enormous body cast it was it was tough it was tough to see her go through it but it's crazy how quickly they bounced back you know she was in that for six weeks and then a different cast for another six weeks and there's a bar going across from knee to knee as well in both of the cast as well so your hips are literally set you can't bend your legs for, for three months 
and um yeah just seeing her come out she was like bambi on ice at first <laughs> she's like her little legs are just all over the place but you know just slowly sort of taught her how to squat again and, and uh, build up the strength and she's she has been she up until the past month or so i'd say she was a little bit more dominant on one side going up mm. steps she tried to lead with the the uh, left leg all the time but now she's starting to go right left right left up the steps so it's good building that strength up and the surgeon said actually that, that, that when he looked at he had a look at her about a month ago now and just said she barely even noticed that well any any surgeries happened it's amazing seeing that that development the cells are regenerating so quickly at that age they just heal it's crazy isn't it it's um just see I, I can't even imagine um but it's got to be, it's interesting that as humans, what we can actually put up with, I think seeing a child in, in the form of, um, especially your own child, yeah, I tend to look at, I see other kids now, and now I've got my own little one, and I instantly feel something, whereas before I didn't, and it's not that I didn't have compassion, but you feel something different. Um, it almost hits you in the gut, like straight away, boom, straight in there. Yeah, I think um, I'd heard stories before where people would tell me about, difficult things that their kid, their kid had gone through when I didn't have a child I'd be like oh that's that's really that's really bad and I would generally think it was bad but then after having a child and hearing stories like that they, they hit me they hit me differently you know you when you think you hear about the, the adversity because it's um yeah it's you know it's, it's such a deep connection and that you have to yeah. this, this little being that yeah you could yeah you understand so much what other parents are going through on a, on a different level. Would you say being a parent has changed the way you coach and the way you move? I guess um, I'm down on the floor a lot with her, but um, I think it's, I don't know, it's a really interesting question. I wonder if it has had an impact on the way I coach. Um, I've done some work with some younger people, but it's very different because she's three at the moment. So I get her to jump around and dance, but at the moment I'm just really encouraging her to just express herself. She likes music and she'll have a dance to music. So I just, just want her to freely express herself as opposed to, Kind of specifically get her to do any movements um i don't know i don't know if it has impacted the way that i i, I speak to clients or coach in that sense do you feel like that has for you um the only way i would say it has is probably understanding even more so that the fundamentals need to be focused on more so so these basic sort of squat patterns where you, you are really looking at the full range um understanding that Children seem to hold posture really well. Um, they, they squat down, they're using their legs, their knees and hips far more. And then you analyze someone on the opposing end of the spectrum who's 60, 70 years ahead. There's all this leaning and rounding of the upper back to, to achieve the same process. So I'd say, yeah, it's really, for me, it's reaffirmed the fundamentals. I knew, I knew they need to be focused on anyway, but I think it's just really made me realize that squat patterns and also actually thinking about it, how a quadrupedal movement pattern that cross body process is a very important thing to explore not necessarily to have in there all the time but that should be part of our repertoire part of our toolbox so yeah in, in a way yeah yeah now it's interesting you say that yeah i've definitely noticed that you know my little one she she sits bolt upright the spine is always just really like great posture and it's yeah that that all falls apart and it's interesting speaking to people who've got older kids actually it's really been really interesting hearing that and, and they're in this industry have noticed that when they go to school and they're starting to sit down more all of a sudden 
you know, posture starts to go, like, you know, they start to get a bit more tightness in hamstrings and that sort of thing. And really noticed that, that physical difference from, because from, I mean, she's at nursery at the moment. So they're kind of, you know, running around and rolling about all over the place. Um, and so a lot more kind of natural human movement. And then all of a sudden you get to school and then we're forced to sit down for all these hours a day. And that's when these postural things start coming online. So I think that's that's probably the, the moment where it starts to fall apart for people once they start to get told, all right, you've got to sit in this chair now, no moving until playtime. It's funny as well, looking at the whole, it's everything, isn't it? Everything's being, the whole environment is molded to uh, efficiency. So what we use on a daily basis, it basically is requiring minimal movement to achieve that said process. And it's funny when you said about intention being one of the big things, for example, and I know you probably experienced this through the modalities you've practiced with, especially certain teachers, about if you're balancing on something or you're balancing on a rail, the intention is if you're a child, it's just to do it. It's just to see if you can do it. Whereas you could set the intention of, right, we're gonna bounce on the left leg and see if I can shift my center of mass from right to left and catch it and do that with specific tempo, specific timing, or transition along this rail by changing height from a low to a high position. And it really changes the whole drill with that intention, doesn't it? It makes a, a one movement process, it opens up this whole spectrum of anything and everything, just because the intention exists at the beginning of that practice. Yeah, that's it, it, and similarly, you, you know, you bouncing on a rail, you could say, right, I want to bounce in this rail, and I, and I want to be as absolutely still as I can possibly be. And then you could also say, right, I want to move my arms and be chaotic and, and still try and maintain balance. And yeah, it's, it, it become they become totally different drills with just from, from the intention that you're putting in, in, into the into the movement into the practice. Yeah, it says it, uh, I think intention is a really interesting thing to really dive into and to explore uh, around you know how you use it in a, in a movement context and also just in a, in a life context as well around what you're doing around you know your intention for your day. It's, if you, I think it's easy to gloss over, but if you can really feel into intention, it's the same thing with gratitude as well. If you, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh yeah, gratitude, write down three things, grateful for my dog, grateful for my house, but it doesn't really, that's not how you get the most out of it. If you're for a gratitude practice, if you, you know, you want to be getting to the point, like I've done it before, I've done a gratitude meditation enough and, and I'll get to a point of feeling so much gratitude for whatever it is I'm thinking, maybe it's my mum, maybe it's my mm. daughter, that there's tears in my eyes, you know, and that, that's, where you, that's where you want to be with these things is like feeling the deep emotion connected to that practice. And it's the same thing with attention. If you can, you know, feel into your, your intention behind things on a deep level, you just get more out of it. You know, it's, it's, it, I think, yeah, like I say, I think these things can be glossed over, but there's, there's real, there's gold there, you know, if, um, if you dig deep enough. Funny enough, that was what I was going to say back to you. I think it's the depth of the practice and the depth of the thought process that is what counts because it's very easy to, I think we can relate to this with TV channels, like skipping from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And sometimes there is huge amounts of benefit in boredom. Like if you're bored, and I, I love that quote as well. It was one I'd heard from Edo and I'm sure it's been said before, but like, if you're bored, it's your fault. I think that's so good because you are missing the details. You are missing what's, I mean, if you're sat in silence and there's nothing around you in an empty room, I think this is why people in prison find something else. They dive into something that they, they were forced into this position. I even think the last two years has done this for many people being stuck at home. 
I mean, I mean, we've had countless distractions, but I still think it has made people be a little bit less busy and actually start to reflect on what is my intention? What am I grateful for? Like, I'm grateful for living. The thing is, though, if we don't practice these things, they disappear, don't they? It has to be a daily practice. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Daily deposits. And yeah, I, I agree. You know, I think we can be guilty of, of just filling time. You know, it's like, I've certainly gone through phases of, of that myself. Where, you know, I listen to a podcast and then at the end, I'm like, okay, next podcast, straight on. And it's like, it's, and then came aware of that. I felt like I was moving to, to you know, too much into that direction of filling time and thought, oh, let me, what, let me listen to a podcast now and maybe reflect on it for a while afterwards and maybe write something down that I actually learned from it and, and try and integrate it. Because otherwise, I think, you know, there's so much information out there. It's like another Edo thing as well, the information being toxic mm. thing, you know, there's, there's so much information out there. It's like we're under a, a waterfall of, of, uh, of information. And, we, you know, all we need is, a, is a, a glass and it's like trying to, you know, get your glass full when there's this cascade of, of information coming down is is uh, is difficult it can be hard to navigate your way through to you know to what you what you really need and, and i think definitely finding having a bit of an introspective practice and have, and finding a bit of stillness and quiet time you can it helps to to quiet that noise and at least to help navigate through it and i had the question earlier in in one of the one of the projects I'm involved with, um, someone in the group asked about the whole mindfulness aspect. And, and I know this has been covered through multiple perspectives, and this is definitely something that's now hit the mainstream is about emptying the cup because the whole mind, mindful, again, like you were saying, we always have the opportunity to top things up. We always have the opportunity to add more. It is about the how can we take things away and deal with what we have. And it's funny that you actually said about getting to the next podcast, going on to the next one, reflecting on it. I've actually gone back through every podcast that I've recorded in the last few months and I've listened to every single one again and taken notes. And the reason being, when I'm chatting to, to yourself and others, I am taking it in. But when I actually get to sit with it and actually listen and really sit back and say, instead of, right, how am I going to record this? How am I going to bring this out to production? It's actually, I'm going to sit back and reflect on this, write it down and pause it, actually sit and think, what is like how am i going to apply those processes that maybe you've been through something you your adversity might teach me something i'm sure it will where i can sit with it and go hey, okay yeah i could see how that could benefit me and this is one of the big reasons i wanted to do this not just to benefit others but but selfishly to learn things uh, for myself in in order to hopefully provide that, that learning process to the people around me and my family as well i think um, it's, a, it's a it's a great idea it's a great way to to learn you know i think having you know, focused conversation is such is such a beautiful beautiful thing. And as I've got older, I've really I've really noticed that every time you have a conversation with somebody, it's almost like this energetic exchange. One of the things that when I, when I went through the, the big transition was I was noticing that if I came away from that energy exchange feeling deflated or feeling energized, and there were you know certain people that thought. Oh, bit draining being you know around that energy and so I tried to start to fill my time more with people that when I came away from this this communication and this interaction I was energized and then I consciously started to try to make myself or to energize other people when I'm talking to them so that it's and it's and I find now that more often than not when I'm having conversations with people we come away and we both you know buzzing full of energy from just a great conversation that's not superficial it's not you know just about some nonsense it's about some something real and that's why I love now I love you know talking about you know real things and getting into some interesting topics and surround myself with people that I can and have that with 
there seems to be this thing i had this before it's oh here we go getting deep on this again but i think that has so much value the ability to sit back and ask some of the best teachers in my life have just asked me questions every question i've posed i've got a question back and fundamentally that has provided more depth it's almost like the teacher sees you on say i don't know level one you ask the question and they give you the question back. That means that when you think about it, you upgrade to level two, level three, and you're going deeper and deeper into this process. And I've seen the the real value in that, but it does seem like in our cultures that it's almost encouraged to stay on the peripheral, to stay on, the, like talk, talk about, and there's nothing wrong with this because I still like doing this, but at certain times, I still want to talk about peripheral stuff sometimes, but equally go in depth. At other times when I'm when I really want to discover it or explore it, but yeah, it really seems like that peripheral seems to dominate our culture. It's the depth that I think should be encouraged a little bit more. I think again, it's a spectrum: everything from one end to the other, and everything in between. One hundred percent, I couldn't agree more. And one of the interesting things, actually, that I've noticed around the the retreats that I hold, so these digital detox retreats, is at the start of the retreat, we'll all sit in a circle. And everybody will share what their intention is for why they're there, what they want to give to the weekend, what they want to receive. And that format for communication where you're sitting in a circle and everybody's listening to you intently. You're the only person that can speak because we hand an object around. So when you're holding the object, it's your turn to speak. It's really powerful and it's quite intimidating for people. But it's so it's so valuable because, you know, I think. Obviously, there's a time, like I say, there's a time and a place, but I think obviously with this, this is the time and a place to have that that type of communication. But when you, if you've got things that are going on in your mind, difficult life situations and whatnot, if you're never in a situation where you need to articulate it, then it just lives in your mind as this kind of jumbled, incoherent thing that, you know, expresses itself maybe in your behaviors and some frustrations and whatnot. But then if you're in a situation where you're able to articulate and able to speak to somebody about it, then, you know, you have to give it narrative. You have to, you know, give it a timeline and, and make sense of it a little bit. And that in turn, you make sense of it yourself. So it's, it's a really healing modality when, like that when communication is done in that really nice kind of even equal way where you know everybody's got an equal time to speak do you think that's partly why you went through that form of depression when you were younger because you couldn't express the the methods or the how do you say the outlets didn't exist um maybe i think there, there were a number of things you know i think obviously you know the being being sedentary is one being unfulfilled and and, and i know for me which i think is a is a quite a widespread problem in men as well is that I just didn't I was a closed book you know I mm. didn't want to talk to anybody about my problems I felt like all of the things that were going on were just mine to deal with you know I wasn't open if, if anybody asked me or you know they would have got oh, everything's all good that would have been the, the vibe that would have got from me rather than you know where, where I probably truly was at and I think in, on many levels on some levels I was you know kind of almost masking that from myself not having that internal dialogue myself in that way so I think um yeah certainly creating environments and a culture where you know we're able to talk and express a lot more in and you know truly how we feel is is going to help because I think yeah certainly as men we can we can mask things and you know bury them down but then it, it just comes out in, in some way in, in some form in terms of you know some some sort of behavioral thing or you know it's, it's, it's not just going to go away you know if you don't talk about it. 
you think the movement because it's something that I can relate to personally do you think that the movement is almost almost like a way of starting the process for example when we tend to be depressed if you start to move you tend to obviously see a hormonal response you see differences in the way you think your cognitive function etc do you think for a lot of us as as men uh, and ladies as well that having a form of movement practice in the community is a nice way to start because i think it leads into a lot of the work you're doing now as well doesn't it with um, various others yeah i mean and you know tot- i totally agree with that and for me that was exactly where it started because I, I was in this situation where I felt like so much was out of control. But the one thing I could control was I could, my, how I moved and what I do with my body. You know, I couldn't control, you know, if uh, this girl likes me, I can't control if, you know, if this place is going to give me this job, I can't control all these different things. There's so many things that are outside of my locus of control, but what is in my control is, is, is my ability to move and, and to connect to my body. And that was a real light bulb moment of like, oh, wow, that is something, you know, that nobody can take away. And like you know, while you're in, while you live in this body, you can, you know, you, you can decide what you can do with it, unless you know, you know <laughs> some unfortunate accident happens. And that really leads me into your current projects. Um, do you want to go through sort of what your current projects are, who you're working with right now, and yeah, the benefits that you've seen in people during that process? Sure. Yeah. So there's a few things that I'm involved in at the moment. So one of them is uh, Flow State Collective. And this is something that I set up with a guy called Bo Wilson. And we've been delivering movement sessions for a number of years now to a nice group of practitioners that we see regularly. And with this, we, we cover lots of different areas. So we focus on linear strength work that is you know, rooted in gymnastics, lots of handstand, rings, and that sort of thing. And also non-linear strength. So this is lots of gains and drills that are encouraging you to come out of alignment and still find strength, still find control um, in, in the patterns. And then locomotion. So we see those are the three areas that we, we teach in that class. But so over the past year, we've broadened what we're what we're about really. And what we're planning to do is put them so four retreats next year. And what we're really passionate about now is, is telling this story of what we call full spectrum health. Because I think over the years, you know, for me, it, it was all, it was initially all about the movement. And then as I've developed and grown, I've just realized that what I'm really interested in is just being a healthy, as healthy as possible. And that encompasses much, much more than just the movement. So we, we we've, thought of this term full spectrum health and, and what that encompasses is motion which is about moving your body restoration which is about replenishing your vessel and that involves you know things like hydration uh, nutrition trying to eat organic locally sourced food um, introspection which is about this inward journey about nurturing the mind so through practices like breath work um, uh, meditation you know these kind of things where you're encouraged to go inward, even like journaling and that sort of practice. And then education, which is really about empowering yourself and, and trying to you know, find ways that you can continue to educate and learn and, and empower who you are through, um, through being a student. So those are the four areas, really move your body, nurture your mind, replenish your vessel and empower yourself. And so now we're, we're trying to tell that story now through retreats that we're going to be delivering uh, over the next year. And this, this now has become a compass or a, a point for me to align everything that I do. So everything now that I do is it needs to feed into this idea of full spectrum health. So I feel like this is something that is a really important story to tell. 
I feel like at the moment there's a lot of people talk about things being holistic and that's a little bit of a word that gets thrown around and I don't know if there's so much weight behind it but I feel like with this system or at least trying to honor these four pillars somehow finding some way to move your body and honor that honor your physicality having some sort of practice around nurturing your mind whatever that may be it might be breath work it might be meditation just something where you're you know you're encouraged finding that silence like we spoke about if you're honoring replenishing your body and, and giving it good fuel you know through what you're eating how you're sleeping what you're drinking um you know, that's going to stand you in good stead. And then if on top of all of that, you're finding something to educate and empower yourself with. And I feel like that is a really nice kind of map towards to becoming a fully full spectrum health human. You know? So this is, um, and this has led also into some work that we're doing with uh, another group called Human Program. And we've joined forces with them to create something called the Human Experience. So this is a monthly experience at a beautiful farm in Surrey and it is a guided breathwork session to begin with you were taken through about 45 minutes of conscious connected breathwork and then each after each of the practices there's guided journaling practice as well to try and internalize and understand some of what you've experienced throughout that process then into some guided movement and the type of movement that we do at the human experience is very much about uh, serious play and connection lots of partner work lots of everybody working with everybody in the room so that you know we create this really real high energy um, very non-linear just lots of flowing movement where you can get lost in a drill you know find that single point of focus and just get lost in that 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 one specific drill then into a guided ice bath session um so got a plastic ice bath and people are aiming to spend you know about three to five minutes in the ice it's guided through in terms of how they should breathe and then a, a little bit of a movement protocol with how they warm up afterwards and then we have food there as well and we invite different different people down to give talks around various products so we had a cbd uh, an organic cbd company called hempen down for the last one and on the next one we've got a, a medicinal mushroom tea company coming down to share about the benefits around that um and we had other little practices as well going on if anybody would like to have uh, like thai yoga massage or osteopathy um one-to-one -one down there as well that all goes on and this is all done in, in within a day for about 40 people that we take through it um and that's it's, it's been awesome we had our first one a couple of weeks ago now it was it was been great to share share this work with people and um like i say i think this this story of this full spectrum health and this this uh, more holistic approach to well-being is something that i'm really interested in getting out to people the journaling in that must be brilliant for some people because they've probably never done it before once they've gone through breath work they've had that introspection then they're sort of having the expression after that and then they're mixing with others it's a really good setup and i love the i love the motion restoration introspection education that is a really nice way of breaking it down so it's um yeah, I love that. Really, really good. Yeah, and it's it, like I say that that now that I feel like has has been something that's come online for me as a thing to orientate myself to in everything that I do. This this year, since the start of this year, I, I, I did a journaling course at the start of the year. It was really powerful. Really helped me to um, really understand my purpose and what you know what I really feel that is. Literally to the point of writing it out that I have 
no specific thing that is the current expression of what I feel like my purpose is. And that is to guide people to their authentic selves while living a life that inspires my children to be great. So I feel like as well, you know, I don't want to be a type of dad that's like, oh, you should do this and you should do that. I want to be the example. You know, I want to, I want to live it. I want to be a living example of, you know, you, of what you can do and what you can create in, in the world. And it's, a, so it's important to me to, to not just say what they should do, but to, to be an, to set an example by how I live and what I do. Um, and so, yeah, everything I do is, is trying to fit into that really. And, and like, like you said as well, to, to try and have as much impact on people as I can. Cause I feel like, you know, the things that I've been exposed to in, in terms of the, the, the type of movement and in terms of, you know, these other modalities around breath work and psychedelics and cold exposure, I've found so much value in that I just want to be able to facilitate and package these up for, for people in a way that they can, you know, get a lot of impact out of it and get a lot from the day and, and um, yeah, start to, you know, maybe have some, have some impact and help people heal and change and, and figure out how they can achieve it because I think it's difficult to I think it's difficult to achieve full spectrum health in today's world with the way it was, is set up it's it's not easy there's a lot of traps there's a lot of things places to trip up and so I, I, what I really want is just to make it easier for people and and, and make it kind of a, a little bit clearer that there are certain things if you honor these areas of life and, and being and you, you know you're going to be able to Know, set the groundwork for living up to your fullest potential you know and it's and i think that's living up to your fullest potential you know it comes from achieving full spectrum health i think you know if you're if you're honoring all of those areas then that is you know fertile ground for you to grow into whatever you you know you're you're destined to be yeah. and i think um you know it's only as I've got older, I've really realized the value of, of things like that and of having that purpose. And I think I've, I may, may have stumbled my way through parts of my life and just kind of not really know where I'm going. And over, uh, you know, more recently now, it's felt like I'm, re I'm really like so solidly strong on the direction that I'm going and I know what I'm supposed to be doing, what I'm supposed to be putting out into the world. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's starting to lean towards facilitating these experiences for people. And the other, because the other area as well that I'm working on as well, so is these return to nature retreats that I do in Wales and just taking people away to get out into nature and just to, to decompress to be severed from all of the responsibilities of parenting of life of work of emails dm social media just the noise of of, uh, of London life or whichever city people are from and just come be somewhere in nature and uh, connect to themselves a little bit on a deeper level and that in turn is also leading to next year going to host a psychedelic retreat uh, in Costa Rica in the springtime. So that's uh, that's going to be interesting. At the moment, potentially, that might be uh, a men's retreat. We're talking about that at the moment, but it's, it's not set in stone at the moment yet. That's it. It's another area that I'm really interested in, in getting into as well as this idea of, of men's work. Of, so I've noticed that from the, the return to nature retreats that I do that having a place where you're able to really communicate openly with other men has been really helpful for a lot of men that I know that don't necessarily have that in their lives through their friend groups and I think yeah there's a there's a lot, lot of really good work to be done around that area and a lot of people that I'm involved with in, in organizing these things are quite interested in that space too so it might be it might be yeah it might end up being a men's retreat in Costa Rica now. I'm interested <laughs> I think that'd be incredible um Something you said actually has really stood out to me um, just to start finishing up, but it's almost like you've got to a point where 
I mean, it sounds like it's taken years. How long would you say it's taken to get to the point you're at now? If you really reflect back. Yeah, the, the, my whole life, you know, it's, it, I mean, like I said, I did, I did this pretty powerful journaling course that really helped to reframe some trauma that I was carrying at the start of this year. Um, and also, I, I, I was lucky enough to um, go and do ayahuasca this year as well. And uh, for, and my one of my intentions in, in doing that was to try to understand what my fullest potential was. And it's an incredible experience of, of diving into that and sort of seeing, you know, what that what, what that could look like, you know, and what it couldn't look like, you know, what the consequences of not, you know, orientating myself towards that um, was super powerful. And so, yeah, I mean, that was literally this year. So all these, and it's the way I, I kind of see it now is these things are constantly evolving, constantly changing. So it's, it's been, yeah, it's been years. And I, I think from the, the initial trauma of, of getting released from Arsenal and like, you know, it was a very difficult time of my ego being pretty shattered as, in terms of not, not being, not going down that path anymore. I think I carried this, this deep sort of sense of not feeling good enough for probably a good 10 years after that and then began the healing process from that point on probably for another 10 years since then so it's uh yeah it's, it's it takes time it's taking me time i think we tend to forget these things take decades sometimes it's about starting to unpack it not expecting to tip the box upside down and pour everything out because i tell you what if you do do that it does become a problem if you unpack things straight away it can become an issue because you've almost unloaded 20 years into your head at once um and i i personally see the value of that somatic type practice where you're dealing with movement as that experience but something really stood out like heal yourself then moving on to others because you're working from experience but equally you were talking about getting people in the direction not necessarily the destination because it seems like you've started to find out who alex sesto is by having an orientation not necessarily getting to a certain point in your life it seems like okay i know where i'm going and that's just as if or if not more important than achieving said goal yeah absolutely i think um yeah that's that's a really really um, good observation in terms of yeah where, where i've kind of come to with what, what i feel about myself and yeah i think when i boil it down it's all been a process of really knowing coming to know myself more and also coming to know my story in a deeper level that was what the journaling course was about it was is about the myths that make up who we are and and what is the myth that you tell yourself about who you are and you know how does that serve you and one of these you know these things that i, I realized was that that notion of not feeling good enough with football was something that filtered through into all these areas of my life but then when i reflected on you know what happened after that um and I, I you know I ended up going to uni in the states I had an incredible time and my life was actually it actually got better and so I thought actually it's the story isn't that I wasn't good enough it the story is that that path didn't serve me anymore and this was another real light bulb moment where all of a sudden I'd reframed this story of who I am in a way that was much more empowering because very disempowering to just be you know tell yourself you're not good enough but it's much more empowering to say actually that path didn't serve me there was something better waiting and it's like this click oh right that's that's a better story that makes much more sense and and um yeah i think you know this process of 
of self-inquiry and introspection is, is huge. It's so, it's so important, I think, to, to really understand your, your own narrative and understand how things in your life have impacted you, like how they've made you feel about who you are and what you're capable of and you know, what the world is. And I think going through processes of, or guided processes of reflecting on that is so beneficial. And it's and you start to peel back these layers and like these understandings and start to maybe know yourself a little bit more. It can be a bit, you can go through times of chaos and a little bit of confusion. But I think you come out, you end up coming out the other side and you know, you can figure it out and you feel a bit, a little bit more aligned. And I, I think that's what it's all been about for me is just trying to really come into alignment with my own authenticity and understand what, what that actually even is. You know, because I think a lot of people talk about authenticity and it's, something that gets thrown around a lot as well but you know really understand what that is there's actually a really interesting thing i picked up recently from a guy called gabriel Marte that talks about the difference between attachment and authenticity um, in children so obviously every, every child is born with a, a need to attach you know because they're so vulnerable as babies we, we can't survive on our own so we need that attachment then we start to express emotion and we start to express authentic emotion. And anyone that's you know, been around a toddler will see that, you know, there's some real authentic emotions being expressed from them. But then at some point, like if you've got someone that uh, a toddler that gets angry quite a lot, if there's a parent, you constantly, you know, put that child in a room and, and say, if they're angry and say, look, you can't come out until, you know, you're not angry anymore. Then what that child learns is that they're not lovable when they're angry. And so what they'll, so they'll choose attachment over authentic expression of their emotion. And then this is something that we learn. We learn, oh, if I want, you know, it's essentially with social media, maybe I, I won't post anything too controversial or this or that because I, I want to stay attached. I want, you know, I want to be liked, you know. And it filters into people's lives in terms of not being able to say no to things. And it's super interesting just understanding how that shows up for you in your life. Like when, like, you know, are you able to fully express your authentic emotions or are there times when, you know, you don't and you do it and you choose to, to stay attached more? And so, uh, yeah, it's been quite interesting to, to explore that for myself as well. It's got some incredible work because uh, Gabor really goes back into very much these these concepts we take on from childhood, doesn't he? He says about, like he said, and what we take through life, those things that impact us in the early years, if we don't address them, they become something that we still relate to in our 50s or 60s. Yeah, he's, he's, he's incredible. He's got an awesome documentary out at the moment called The Wisdom of Trauma, uh, which watched recently that's just fascinating to just explore trauma and, and how you know is this this is another thing as well that is this thing that we don't understand fully because you know tra unresolved trauma eventually is expressed as it comes out as disease it comes out mm. it, you know it lives in the tissue and it comes out and manifests in, in disease as we get older if it's not if it's not resolved and it's, it's, it's you know this is something that the medical world you know we're, we're a bit, we don't see that association so well but i guess you're getting more into the realms of things like shamanism and these other mm -hmm. modalities of, of, um, of healing um, that, that come to deal with that. So it's, um, it's a really interesting area. And I think his work is, is brilliant because so many of us are, are carrying trauma around, around things, you know, and the, the more trauma informed people can come that, that have a practice of working with other people that, you know, we're going to end up in a much better world where people are not, you know, behaving from that point of trauma which is leading to all sorts of you know, negative consequences for them for the people around them so it's, uh, it's yeah it's fascinating work and what i'll do as well alex just like every podcast i'll obviously link to yourself and the work you guys are doing because i feel it's really important and 
that retreat next year, I think would be incredible as well. Um, and I think there's value in um, not to sort of segregate sexes, but I think there is value in, in everyone having their different times to spend with and, and vocalize, whether that's as a mixed group or separate group or whatever it might be. I think there is value in doing that because it is something that's been ingrained in our evolution as well. Um, to finish as well, because I could chat to you all day about this stuff for sure. It's, it's been good, an amazing conversation. So to finish every podcast, I'm keen to leave the listeners with some simple routines that they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. You may have gone through these, I'm sure you have already, but what principles would be at the top of your list to form the foundations of human health, or in other words, a human first approach? So I guess for me, it would really be aligning to those four pillars. Um, for me, as, as part of my morning routine, um, I'll do some guided breath work. Um, so that's you know feeding into the introspective layer, but then also you know throughout the, throughout my day I I tend to think of or I get I try to encourage people to think of their movement output, their daily movement output, and sort of analysing that and, and 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 starting to raise the baseline of how much you're moving from wherever it's at now to to more, and that that might involve a morning routine that in, incorporates some movement or you know just just at least you know getting in your your, your sessions, um, and then obviously the the restoration. You know, really paying attention to what what food, you know, what hydration is going into your body, how you're sleeping, and just like making sure that you're taking care of this vehicle that your consciousness is experiencing the world through in, in the best possible way. You know, um, and honouring that, and then the education pillar in terms of empowering yourself, just really feeling into what you feel drawn to, learning about, and because I think when you're really interested and passionate about something the learning is it's, it's completely different experience you know you just absorb it you become very absorbent as opposed to learning stuff that you don't give a shit about so sometimes I've, I've definitely noticed that at school if I was really interested in the subject I'd just pick it up like that okay I, I remember I had a, a psychology exam and I just read I read the, the book the night before and I got an A the next day because I found it so interesting I, was, I found it fascinating and I think if you can find something that you that really lights you up and is interested in, just just begin the process of trying to educate yourself around that, and that is so empowering because you'll be able to talk about it with people and it'll open doors eventually as well. And I think if you can, you know, take time to try and honour those four pillars each day, then you and you do that. It's like there's another analogy as well about you know if you have two ships that are going exactly the same direction on the, on the ocean and then one changes its course of direction just by one degree for ages they won't they won't even look like they're going in any different direction but then you know three months down the line they're in completely different places it's just about honoring you know, it's the kind of one percent a day thing if you can honor those things on a daily basis then you know you'll really start to upgrade your experience on this this, this planet i like them man they're awesome really really good alex Really appreciate your time today, buddy. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, incredible conversation, and it's great to get into some depth as well and really dive into these things that have not only helped you, but helped people around you. So they're proven, and I'm sure many people will find benefit from this for sure. Thank you so much. It's been really good to talk to you, man. Awesome. Cheers, Alex. All the best. Thank you for listening to this discussion with Alex and myself today. I personally found his experiences with plant medicine really interesting, and it's definitely an area I would like to explore at some point. For more information on his current work, please follow the link in the show notes and for details on mental health assistance, we will also place links here that might be of some use to you. 
Thanks again. Massively appreciate you listening. I will see you on episode 10.